Welcome to another Tyrius Cast. I'm Jim McGregor. And I'm Kevin Crewell. Today we're going to discuss the FTC lawsuit against Qualcomm. We're in the final stages of the FTC's complaint against Qualcomm. The two just finished final arguments in a federal court in San Jose. Yeah, we've been following this case very closely because of the potential impact on the mobile and wireless segment and IP licensing in general. As part of our coverage, I did spend two and a half days in the courtroom to see the testimonies and observe the proceedings live. Now, this is a really complicated case. I mean, they spent several weeks in court, so we're not going to go over everything. But we thought it'd be important to kind of go over the key points and discuss some of the other issues that may have been missed in this case. So we're going to start this out by kind of doing a point-counterpoint. So one of the key points in the FTC case, and there were three main key points that we're going to bring up here, was that Qualcomm had a dominant position in the market. Therefore, Qualcomm had market power. Kevin? Yeah, so what the FTC brought in was an expert, Professor Shapiro, who made a argument that based on his analysis of the the market between 2006 and 2016, and specifically in the case, this is only refers to CDMA and premium LTE, the FTC's case is limited to just those two segments, that he observed that in his analysis, Qualcomm had this market-dominant position, and in his analysis, that should have read to supra-friend licensing fees and a limitation in competition. Now, the question is, is, did it really do it? I mean, from what we've seen from Qualcomm and from the industry, licensing fees haven't gone up. In fact, they've gone down. In any case, they've, they've kind of maintained as these licensees have put more patents out there. Yeah, and that's the Qualcomm defense, which I think is fairly strong in this case, because when Professor Shapiro presented his analysis, provided very little real support. His only supporting charts were about market share. And specifically, after competition entered the markets, in the case of CDMA, it was MediaTek, you saw a sharp decline in Qualcomm's market share. And so therefore, there's a good indication that Qualcomm didn't have market dominance. It had a situation where there was just not sufficient competition. And that's not Qualcomm's fault. That was due to the problems with the other companies trying to enter the market or the case of MediaTek being a fast follower. They meant to the market after Qualcomm had established the market. So it was difficult to see how Shapiro made a case that Qualcomm limited competition based on being in first time, you know, early to market with CDMA and LTE technology. Well, and did they talk about some of the issues with the other companies? I mean, obviously, there used to be a lot more vendors for modems in the market. You know, companies like TI and Freescale and these others were in the market. But we saw them exit the market willingly. I mean, they just decided that this wasn't, everything was going to be a thin modem and it was going to be commoditized and it wasn't important. So they exited the modem market. Did the FTC even bring that up? The FTC did not. Qualcomm, of course, did. And in fact, that's part of the case that the Qualcomm lawyers brought up that was and had expert opinion on as well is the fact that most of these other vendors had fundamental issues in either their market vision, their execution, or their investments in the cellular market. Broadcom fell behind and then made a few acquisitions and then finally dropped out of the marketplace. But it wasn't because of Qualcomm, it was because a poor execution by Broadcom. The same is true, I think, well, TI, I think, made a strategic decision because they thought thin modems were going to be a, uh, a limited and um, low-margin business. TI wanted to focus more on analog. 
In the case of Intel, Qualcomm even called Bain Consulting in, who did an analysis of Intel's business and found that Intel was just not executing well. Intel, in fact, Intel probably had more people working on modems and produced less SKUs than Qualcomm could produce. And therefore, the issue wasn't that Intel was being held back by Qualcomm. It was just that Intel was not executing well on this modem strategy. And in fact, was late to CDMA because they initially didn't think they wanted to be in the CDMA business. Eventually, acquiring assets from Viatech, which had a CDMA design, and then finally entering the CDMA market. Well, and they also acquired Infineon to get in the modem market. And when they did that, that was in 3G, and Infineon didn't even have a 4G solution at that point. Yeah, there was plenty of testimony that the uh, Infineon was about two years behind Qualcomm in the technology, and Intel knew that and was struggling to keep up. A number of times the case revolved around Apple and Intel's interest and attempts to enter the market for thin modems at Apple, specifically trying to enter in first at the iPad level for for cellular connections for iPad. But it was clear that the Intel technology wasn't ready for prime time and it didn't meet Apple's requirements. In addition, there was a agreement between Apple and Qualcomm so that Apple was uh, getting a significant amount of incentive pay back from Qualcomm to maintain its status as a primary Qualcomm customer. Well, you brought up the second point earlier, too, and that was that Qualcomm received what they called suprafrand licensing fees, and FRAND stands for Fair, Reasonable, and Non-Discriminatory License Fees. So that is basically the way companies have agreed to license technology, or what we call the standard essential technology, wireless technologies under Etsy, the organization that maintains this. Yeah, SAP, or Standard Essential Patents, SAPs is what it's commonly called. So the question is, is because of Qualcomm's dominant position in the market, or you know, being one of the only ones or early ones in the market, did they get uh, higher than normal licensing fees because of that? Well, and, and this is where Professor Shapiro's case was kind of arbitrarily narrow. He focused on the period of time from 2006 to 2016 when Qualcomm was in the chipset business. What he did not look at was prior to 2006, when Qualcomm initially started licensing the CDMA patents out to uh, handset vendors, it, it licensed at a certain rate. But then once it introduced chips, that rate did not go up. It remained the same. So if Qualcomm had a lock on the market, you would think the licensing fees would have gone up, but it did not. So it was consistent over time. Qualcomm added more patents to the portfolio over time and yet still didn't raise the rate. The rate was the same for WCDMA. So there was really no proof that Qualcomm benefited for from SuperFRAN licensing fees. Also, Shapiro's analysis of what is FRAND and, and the whole licensing structure was somewhat floored and that he he made it appear as though that any of the FRAN licensing was a tax on the handset business when it is really, it's an IP payback for the investment in the technologies that Qualcomm and others have made into developing uh, these telecom standards. Well, it's important to note that Qualcomm isn't the only one. You've got Ericsson, you've got Nokia, Motorola, InterDigital, uh, Huawei, even Intel has some. So, I mean, there's a wide range of companies that are investing billions of dollars in this IP technology. So, okay, so that's kind of a summary of the first key point of the fact that, you know, Qualcomm had a dominant position and used that for licensing fees that 
apparently they didn't do too well improving on the FTC side. But they also said that Qualcomm had a no-license, no-chip policy. You want to highlight that a little bit more? Sure. And Qualcomm never denied that it did have that. It, and it's a very, really good rationale. Qualcomm didn't want to, wouldn't sell a chip to a company that didn't have a license for the standard central patents because that's a requirement to ship a handset. Is You had to respect the IP that Qualcomm had developed on the licensing side. So Qualcomm didn't want to be in a situation where it's providing chips to a company that then try to ship handsets without a license. So forced vendors, the handset vendors, to first negotiate a license. And I think that was just Qualcomm doing its job at protecting its own licensing fees and standard essential patents. So I think that's proper and, and there's really no anti-competitive nature to that. And in fact, the FTC never proved that Qualcomm really enforced the policy completely in that and almost always uh, the vendors did take a license because they recognized that they, they were legally obliged to do so based on IP. But in addition, even when there were periods of times when they were renegotiating a license, and this happened quite often, especially with larger vendors like Samsung, there was always a, a, a time of renegotiation on these licenses. Qualcomm never stopped shipping chips to these guys. They only these companies. The only time uh, that Qualcomm stopped shipping chips was when the company was in arrears in payment. Now, they were basically not paying for the chips, so therefore no vendor would ship them stuff that they didn't pay for. So I, I don't think this, the, the no license, no chip policy is in any way uh, a proof that Qualcomm was doing anything that wasn't in their rights to do. So I, I, I think that case sort of fell apart pretty quickly. Yeah, I think the only one they could really note was they refused to ship sample units, not even production units, to LG. But um, LG did take a license, and they did rectify that situation, and that they never withheld production units. And that was for WCDMA. That wasn't even for CDMA or, or premium LTE, which is what this case was supposed to be about. So it wasn't even about the case, so... no. That and they never withheld production units when a vendor was not paying or, contra- or contractual negotiations were ongoing. In other words, the only way they withheld shipments was when it was clear that a company was not even going to ship handsets or was going under. Yeah, uh, and then uh, eventually, I think when Apple sued Qualcomm, I think that's probably where you know we we get a situation that sort of breaks the uh, the relationship between uh, Qualcomm and, and in this case Apple. To my knowledge. Apple chose to make the decision not even to use Qualcomm independent of that. Is that correct? Yeah. Apple wanted to have a second source, and they pushed to get Intel into their handsets. But at no point, you know, until they sued Qualcomm, did that uh, interfere with Qualcomm shipping in many units. So Okay. And the other... the. Other key point that I don't know if you call it a point or if you call it a resolution, but the FTC is claiming that Qualcomm has refused to license to other chip vendors and is kind of pushing for that model, you know, rather than licensing to the end devices. So, how did that kind of hold up? Or can you expand on that a little bit? Well, this this is, and I believe this is actually what Qualcomm, what the sorry, what FTC is looking for as a remedy, and that is they want Qualcomm to license competing chipsets. And Qualcomm made it clear that the goal of the standard essential patents around these technologies like CDMA and LTE and, and in the future, 5G, so those are system-level patents. They're, they're not patents that just covered the, uh, the part of the 
uh, standard that's inside of a chip, but it includes other factors in antennas and, and radios and uh, propagation methods and, and all these other parts of the standard. So there are system level patents and therefore they should be applied to the handset because the handset is really what enters the system and it has the full range of patentable technologies from RF all the way down to, uh, you know, silicon. So to break it down into some central uh, patents that would apply to the hand, uh, to the chipset, some that would apply to the RF, some would apply to the handset design, is going to make it much more complicated if that if the FTC gets its way. And that's I think the the key here is it's simple today. We've got a system that works. There's a few vendors that complain, mostly I think Apple, and they're trying to break it up and force Qualcomm to change its licensing scheme. That has worked, you know, brilliantly for all these years. And we probably wouldn't be getting 5G in an early phase right now because of the, without the investment that Qualcomm has made into the technology. So, yeah, I, I don't see how the FTC proved that this was in any way a detriment to companies entering the market. And no point in time did any of the chip vendors say that the lack of a direct license from Qualcomm stopped them from investing in R&D into modem chipsets. So I don't really see where the uh, this case really, the FTC's case really holds up here. And actually, it's allowed that whole model has allowed other chip vendors to enter the market, not just MediaTek, but when you look at other ones from Spreadtrum as third parties or integrated in-house chip companies like High Silicon, which is part of Huawei, or Samsung's chip unit. So yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to make that case when all these companies have entered the market after the market was established. Yeah, the FTC, I think, failed to prove that there was any consumer harm by the actions of Qualcomm, that there was any harm to competition, and that any of the remedies would in any way change the way the market dynamics are other than possibly to the to the negative. So I, I really was unable to figure out what the FTC was doing bringing this case in the first place. And, it, and this is really kind of funny because it's, Right after the the government protected Qualcomm from from potential acquisition by Broadcom, because of the critical nature of the IP that Qualcomm has helped develop for the uh, telecom infrastructure, including 5G going forward, and what FTC is trying to do here is throw a monkey wrench in this whole process. Well, and you mentioned harm. The Supreme Court ruled last year that you have to show some kind of harm, and I guess they haven't really done that. It's also important to note that we've talked about this IP licensing and patents, and the FTC case was really only about the SEPs, the standard essential patents. Most of these companies, whether it be Qualcomm, Ericsson, Nokia, whoever, they license broad portfolios of patents, and they make the, they offer their customers or offer the licensee, licensee, sorry, the opportunity to license just the SEPs or to license the entire portfolio. And like Qualcomm, Qualcomm has over 140,000 patents. They license everything from the user interfaces to different applications to, you know, reference designs, all kinds of stuff. And so does everyone else. So it's kind of hard to see how you can, you know, break down not just the SEPs, but this whole plethora, this whole, these massive libraries. I mean, they estimate that the average smartphone uses at least 2 million patents. Can you imagine trying to do each one of those individually? Yeah, and that, that's the argument that Qualcomm made, and I think is pretty reasonable, that trying to to break it down to all these different domains 
it's going to be fairly complicated, and it made much more sense to license it on the handset basis. It simplifies all these issues and makes the licensing much more, or much easier to implement. But it, this is all up to now uh, in the hands of Judge Lucy Coe. During the trial, I didn't really get an impression that she was leaning one way or the other on the case. She did pay a lot of attention. She was listening intently. She was uh, taking notes. There's, in addition to the trial testimony, there's reams of materials that both sides have submitted to the court. And it's going to be up to her to take, take as much time as she needs to... Uh, Uh, to make a decision on this case. And the question then becomes, whichever way she decides whether the other parties will wind up appealing, whether it goes in the FTC's favor and Qualcomm appeals uh, or the other way around. So far, the FTC and and Qualcomm, I believe, have been talking about possible settlement, but to date, there's nothing that's ever, it hasn't uh, got to the point where uh, they could present it to the the court. At this point in time, it, it does really seem to be in uh, Judge Coe's hands. Well, Tyrius Research is obviously following this case pretty closely. In our opinion, this case is important because it's really against the entire wireless industry pioneered by companies like Motorola, Ericsson, Nokia, and the likes. It's really not just against Qualcomm. These companies took this step of this licensing model to create an open environment, not just to step on each other's feet, but really to create an open licensing environment so that the best and brightest technology was brought to market and it fueled innovation beyond what we could have ever imagined. I mean, the uptake of cellular and wireless technology has been beyond any technology we've seen to date and continues to fuel it. If you look at all the leading chipset vendors and all the leading handset vendors in the market today, They weren't the innovators. They weren't the original ones. So every company in the market has benefited from this today. Yeah, I think changing the licensing model would do probably irreparable harm to the industry. It would actually disincentivize companies to to make these billion-dollar bets on new technologies and sharing the technologies through these industry standards. We must remember that this is an open standard that Qualcomm hasn't withheld licensing anybody so that anybody can enter this market. As a counterexample, look at uh, Intel x86. Intel only begrudgingly has to license AMD based on being forced to do so. And it's not an open standard, and, and, and therefore it limits competition. With the standard process that we have today through the 3GPP and ETI and, and uh, the licensing of SEPs under FRAND, we have a situation where there is competition and there are opportunities for vendors to enter the chip market unimpeded by closed-end or uh, licensing models. So we'd like to see that this innovation uh, continue, and I believe that the people that are driving this innovation should be properly compensated for it in proper rates. So that's, I think, why I you know believe that this FTC case really doesn't help the industry and, and is counterproductive to the industry. In addition to uh, the podcast, don't forget to check out our Forbes.com columns. Both Jim and I have wrote, ex- wrote extensively about the case and, uh, and in more detail. On that note, I think we will wrap another Tyrius cast. Tyrius Research is a market research advisory firm that provides custom research and advice to the entire high-tech ecosystem from sensors to the cloud. This includes custom market sizing, product and company competitive analysis, M&A evaluations, product and corporate strategic planning, and marketing strategies. For more information about Tyrius Research, please visit our website at www.tiriasresearch.com 
or contact one of our analysts. Also, keep up with us on social media at Tyrius Research or at Crewell for me and at Tech Strategist for me. Thank you so much for joining us today, and hopefully, uh, you enjoyed our little discussion. For any suggestions on future topics, uh, please drop us a line. <laughs>